0: We've read from John, John 15 before in connection with the fruit of the Spirit. And at that time, it was particularly the first half of the passage that was focused on. Today, we're going to read verses 9 through 17 again as um, background, maybe to the uh, passage from Galatians. John 15, verses 9 through 17. 17, these are the words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So far, let us now turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read 5, verse 25, to 6, verse 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. for each will have to bear his own load. And our text this morning is 6 verses 1 through 5. We're going to be going through that word by word, so hopefully you can follow along together. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed that whenever kids do something together, it always ends up becoming a contest? Maybe they're playing with cars for a while, and then the one asks the other, which one goes faster? Let's find out. Or maybe they're folding paper airplanes, and then at some point, they want to throw them and find out which goes further. Or maybe it's children with dolls. They start to compare compare these and find out which one is wearing the better dress. They compare hair color, that sort of thing. Everything turns into a comparison. And the same thing is true of adults, isn't it? We never really outgrow that mentality of comparing. We do it in all sorts of areas in life. What you drive, how you look. And sometimes people do it in church life as well. And that's not a good thing. They compare themselves to other church members on all sorts of attributes, maybe even spiritual attributes, and then try to work out where they rank. It doesn't work that way. And the the reason that it doesn't work is because in church, church is the one place in the world where everybody who comes through the doors has the same starting point. We are all already on the same level, so to speak. We all are, by nature, sinners in need of grace. God promises us forgiveness and a place in His family. He calls us to respond to that promise in faith. So we don't need to compare with each other in order to find out what our place is. We already have a place. We already have a place as church members. But it's not always clear how we are to relate to each other. What do you do when someone falls into sin, for instance? And how do you view people who seem to produce more of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives than you do? People maybe even that you look up to. How does this section connect to the previous one? Paul wrote about keeping in step with the Spirit. And then he goes on to, to talk about the section about restoring people, about assessing yourself What does it all look like in a church setting? Well, we're going to consider those questions together this morning, and we'll see that you can only keep in step with the Spirit when we are living and active church members, because then we can restore each other gently, and then we can also assess each other realistically. So look at these opening words in chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore to what? Well, restore to a fully functioning life as church member, fellowship as a church member. He's he's obviously talking about the church here and about church members. He's not writing to them merely as individuals, but he's writing to them as church members. That's clear from the context of, of restoring. And this idea of, of being caught, of being caught in any transgression, shows that it implies that someone has fallen in some kind of a sin, which has isolated him or her from other church members. We can probably all think of an example. Maybe a young man got his girlfriend pregnant, for example. They didn't intend for it to go this way, but they got carried away in the, the heat of the moment made a foolish decision, and now they have the consequences. Their sin has become public. Or maybe, maybe someone is stuck in a harmful pattern of behavior and trying to break with the sin, and their behavior has come to the point where this person is isolated from the other church members. And, and so in both of those examples and many others that you could think of, the person is caught in a transgression, They fell into sin. It wasn't something that happened to them passively, of course, but they were were overtaken. If anyone is caught in any transgression. That word transgression is interesting too, by the way, because it it implies that the moral law still applies. And it's always worth thinking about that because throughout this letter, Paul has been saying how the moral law has been, well, the whole law, the whole Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ. Remember in Galatians 4 for example he said when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the full we might receive adoption as sons so believers are no longer under old testament law they are no longer subject to its demands they are no longer subject to its threats and that applies to the whole Entirety of the Old Testament law. So being a Christian is not primarily about obeying God's law. And if you're visiting today and this is your first time in church or if you're listening in on the live video feed as we know uh, people from different places are, this might come as a surprise. But it's true. Being a Christian is not primarily about obeying God's law. All that the law demands from us today is that we are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And that's what Galatians 5, verse 13 to 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But when you ask, how then do you do that, then the law serves as a guide, and it is not an optional guide. When we hear the word guide, we think, um, we think well, you know, you can have the guide if you can't find your way around yourself, but um, how many people pay for, for a tour guide? A lot of times, you, you know, you think, I'll work it out on my own, but the law is not that sort of a guide. It is not optional. It's not the 10 suggestions. Christ died to free us from the penalty of the law. He did not die so that we have the right to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Also, we're right back where we started in Genesis, right? Remember what Satan said to to Eve you you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You get to decide. And that's not, Jesus did not free us so that we can go back there. So the point is that this word transgression. Is a a loaded term. It implies that the law of God is still valid in our lives. The law does not stop telling you the difference between right and wrong. But the law cannot produce the fruit of faith. The Holy Spirit has to produce that fruit in us. And when he does, what happens? Well, we come alongside each other. Instead of judging each other according to the law, when someone falls into sin, you come alongside We support each other. And that's what he means in verse 2 when he talks about fulfilling the law of Christ. This is how it works. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, interesting that it is called the law of Christ. Remember in 5 verse 18, he said, you're led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But that doesn't mean that the law is separate from our lives, that it's unconnected. No, he calls it the law of Christ. He's referring to love, but you don't get to fill in that word love with whatever you want it to mean. That's still the law of Christ. He's still our head. We are still accountable to him. We do not get to make of the church whatever we want. That's why he refers to those, you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual means you who... Um, Have the Holy Spirit, you who show the fruit of the Spirit. Now here, true spirituality is not associated with an attitude of judgment or condemnation, but gentle concern. And that's another one of those things that's a bit different from how we usually look at it. Isn't that true? Because what do you think of when, when you think of someone who is very spiritual? What's the first word? If we were to play a word association game... If I said spiritual, what's the first word that comes to mind? Well, um, possibly strict. We think of spiritual people as people that are very straight-laced, very strict, and um, you might respect them, but you will not invite them over to have a drink together because these are people that are strict. They're spiritual. They're straight-laced. And Paul is saying, no, no spirituality is characterized by compassion. Obviously, a truly spiritual person will live by a high moral standard, but our text indicates that the primary characteristic of a highly spiritual person is a spirit of gentleness. He's saying you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, that's what it means to be truly spiritual. And that's a command. You should restore him. It's an imperative. So there's an implication here. This, this person who is to be restored at that point is outside of the circle of Christian communion. Maybe because he or she is under church discipline. Church discipline is another one of those things that... That um, we sometimes think of as negative. We have these associations in our mind. But it is actually a very positive thing. It's a necessary thing. Necessary for the sinner. Necessary for the church. Church discipline is necessary for the sinner. Because if you don't deal with sin. You miss an opportunity for formal restoration. It's easy not to deal with sin. It's always easier. Nobody likes confrontation. The office bearers don't either. These brothers do not like, they do not enjoy confronting people with sin, but you have to do it because sin creates a breach between the members and the church community. The person has often already alienated others with his or her sin. And if you don't deal with that, if you don't restore the person, then the breach remains. If you do deal with it, then you have the opportunity of of guiding this person formally, Into the church community again. So it's good for people and it's good also for the church. If you have members living in blatant and unrepentant sin, the church becomes contaminated. The bride of Christ is stained. That's why Article 69 of our church order says that the second purpose of church discipline is to remove the offense from the church of Christ. Church discipline is necessary. And if discipline has its intended result, the person is restored. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restored, by the way, is a medical word. Um, The word is often used, has been used in in ancient literature to refer to a doctor setting a bone, for example. And that gives you right away a whole whole picture of what this restoration involves. Because some of you um, have had broken bones in the recent past. We've seen people walking around with, with moon boots. And the purpose of, of restoring a broken bone is to make your limbs mobile again so that the whole body functions the way it's supposed to, right? And so restoring a member like this implies that the person has, is, is fully functional again as a church member. They don't become this um, lower-ranked member that always walks around with this cloud of whatever they've done above them, but they're restored. The only thing is this implies a person wants to be restored which is not always the case and maybe that surprises you it can happen that, that people struggle with a deep sense of shame and it can also happen that such people are not actually repentant they're dragging their heels because they don't really want to be restored they have not repented on the level of their heart and what you see and you might have seen this before What you then find is that these people are always complaining about other church members. They complain about other church members. They complain about how they're so hard done by by the attitudes and the words and the deeds of other people. Nobody accepts me, etc. It's such an unforgiving church. But the real issue is that they don't want to be accepted. And so it's easier for them to focus on other people and their alleged misdeeds than to participate actively in the process of restoration. And as office bearers, we need to be vigilant for this. You need to be vigilant because if you don't see that happening, then then you're always um, trying to facilitate this restoration and maybe dealing with all of these other people without dealing with the actual problem, which is that the person in the heart of hearts doesn't want to come back. And maybe they don't even haven't even said it out loud, they haven't thought it through, but that is what happens, and it happens more often than you think. So, office bearers need to be vigilant. But most of the time, the person is simply lost and ashamed, and says, Paul, you who are spiritual need to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness connects back to the fruit of the Spirit. Gentle person, the the word means someone who's not full of himself. So to restore someone with a spirit of gentleness doesn't mean that you come alongside that person and and sort of keep your distance at the same time but it means it means that you you really you don't come down on them from a high and mighty position and watch them squirm you don't you don't treat them like some people some people have this idea of treating a dog and um Maybe you've done it yourself, and if you do, um, dog psychologists, there is such a thing, say that this is wrong. But if you have a puppy and it pees on the carpet, then sometimes people take the puppy and rub its nose in in the pee to make it not do that again. Apparently you're not supposed to do that, and some people do that in church life too. They They really want to take the member and really rub their faces on what they've done, and you're not meant to do that. That is not restoring someone in a spirit of gentleness. But at the same time, you do it in a spirit of vigilance. Keep watch on yourself, he says, lest you too be tempted. That's a command. Um, actually, the um, the ESV our translation that we're reading right now starts a new sentence here with "keep watch on yourself," and and it makes "keep watch" it turns it into a command, which is um, a legitimate translation choice. The the rules of grammar do let you do that. But in the original language, this is actually one long sentence, verse 1, and keep watch is a, is a participle. Now you might wonder what, um, what's the point of this little grammar point, but there's, there's a reason for this. Brothers, it says, literally, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch, on yourself, keeping watch. On yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's a participle. It's ongoing. Keeping watch on yourself. Ongoing vigilance is required. He's saying, look, you, you could be next. You think you have it worked out to, to help this person back into church community? Well, you could be next. You could be next. Don't think that you're immune to sin Remember the words of Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Sooner or later, sin catches up to everyone, including the sin of arrogance. Worst of all is the knowledge that you were an abomination to the Lord at the very time when you thought that you were at your most righteous so he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And he goes on to say, bear, bear one another's burdens. By the way, um, it should be pointed out that um, obviously the office bearers have a role to play in, in restoring someone uh, in terms of the formal church discipline sense of it. But, um, but this is not limited only to office bearers. This whole passage applies to each one of us. And maybe that wasn't clear enough earlier, but it is certainly clear from verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. He's not saying this only applies to office bearers. This is uh, the whole process he's talking about, and it applies to us all. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean with that word burdens? Well, um, it's different from uh, the word load in verse 5. Burdens here refers to a heavy load, something that is exhausting for someone to carry on his own. What burden are we talking about in context? Primarily the burden of temptation and transgression. Right? If someone is, is struggling with sin, you cannot help them from a distance. An obvious example might be someone who regularly commits a sin of viewing Pornography. Let's not pretend that that never happens in church. And maybe you know someone like that. And if you do, if you're, let's say, a young man who knows another young man who, who struggles with a sin, maybe maybe you could offer to start an accountability group together. You meet together every week and you read the Bible, you pray for each other, and you talk about how, how your struggle with sin went that week. It's, it's, it's not a foreign concept. It's a very biblical thing to do. Or maybe someone is suffering the consequences of someone else's sin. Right? Such people may may need practical support. They need you to come alongside them and help them to bear their burden. That doesn't mean you you protect people from the consequences of their sin. Obviously, if somebody is um, stuck in persistent sin, Proverbs 19 verse 19 reminds us, if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. But somebody who, who um, suffers from the consequences of someone else's sin or somebody who is suffering the consequences of their own sin and they're very penitent and they really want to work with it. Um, people like that need help. They need encouragement. They may need practical support. He refers in, in, in verse 2, though, to fulfilling the law of Christ. That means showing showing love to your neighbor. And that means that it applies to more than just this this idea of of, um, helping people that struggle with temptations and and things like that. The, The burden here applies to all burdens because we all have burdens. Some people struggle with certain temptations, that's true. Others struggle with spiritual problems. Others have family problems that cause them untold grief Others have health problems. Others are unemployed. Other people feel lonely. Other people feel a sense of aimlessness in life. Now, everybody, every church member has a burden. There is not a single person here that does not carry some sort of a burden. And sometimes we're, we're, we've, we've been taught from very early on to be tough. You deal with these things without making a fuss. You don't complain. And it's important, of course, to raise children to be resilient. I mean, if there's one thing that characterizes the time that we live in, it would be a lack of resilience. Isn't that true? There is a genuine lack of resilience in, uh, in our society, in our culture. People are not resilient. They have nothing to be resilient for. It does not bode well for our future, and we we want our children, when we raise them, to be different. But we ought not to raise them as Stoics. Stoicism was a heathen philosophy, very popular during the time of Paul when he wrote this letter. And to a Stoic, the ideal life was a life where you could live without being affected by suffering. It was a bit like Buddhism in that sense. Buddhism came earlier, but um, Stoicism was this, this idea... This idea that you should not be affected by suffering. And you should, not be effect- you should be independent from other people in that sense. You should be self-sufficient. But our text says you are not self-sufficient. And you should not raise your children to be little Stoics. Instead, it says, bear one another's burdens. It doesn't qualify that. It does not say, well, some people are the weak members. You need to bear their burdens. And uh, other people are the strong members. They get to do the bearing. No. There's no exceptions to this command. And it is also not suggesting that sharing burdens is a defect. It's not a defect. It is a feature. This is how we are designed to work as church members. But not everyone is obedient to this command. Some church members want to bear the burdens of others, but they won't let others near their own burdens. Where is that coming from? Is it still the heathen specter of Stoicism lurking over our church life? Is it maybe a misplaced understanding of what Calvinism is supposed to be about? Not that we are primarily Calvinists, but Calvin was a big influence in our theology, as were the other reformers. And is it still a little bit of this uh, misunderstanding of what that was about? And it's actually just Stoicism that's lurking on the edges of our church life. Well, you cannot, be a, you cannot believe that and be a living and active church member. The two don't fit together. He's not saying we need to share every burden with every church member without exception. That, that um, some burdens are more personal than others. You don't necessarily want to share them with everybody, and it can take time to learn to trust others in the church community as well. But it does say, bear one another's burdens. No one should have burdens that they carry alone. There may also be times when you want to share your burdens with all church members and, and list their prayers, and then it's appropriate to ask for congregational prayer. Sometimes we're reluctant to do that. And often, when you talk to people and you say, well, why don't you request congregational prayer, they feel like their burden is not important enough for that. But that doesn't come up in our text at all. It doesn't say only, only share the big burdens. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And it's not maybe something we're used to always doing So we wonder, well, how do we begin? Why not use the church ward list? Start by, you're all part of a ward. Start by praying for everyone in your ward. You pick one family, one person per day, and um, lift them up before the Lord in your personal prayers. And you look at the list, you might say, well, I don't know who these people are. Then get to know them. Have them over for coffee. Talk to them about your life, their life. And you'll very soon find things that you can pray about. And if you're not sure, ask them, how can I pray for you? What if we all committed to doing that this year? What if we all tried this for 12 months, to just pray for each person, each family in our word on an individual basis? See what it does to our church community a year from now. We might be amazed at what the Lord will do with that kind of faithful burden-bearing. In any case, one thing is clear. We can only keep in step with the Spirit when we are living and active church members. Then we can restore each other gently. But we can also assess each other realistically or ourselves realistically, which is what we were going to look at next. One of the things that's really clear from this text is that we are... Incredibly susceptible to self-deception. Verse 3. Paul writes, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. By nature, we are nothing, he says. I am nothing, you're nothing. God owes us nothing. As the Canons of Dort put it in chapter 3, 4, article 15, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own but sin and falsehood? Scripture is very clear that whatever merits we may have come from God. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Paul writes, who, who sees anything different than you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5, he writes, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. It's God's grace that we are what we are. And that's why it makes no sense at all for us to compare ourselves spiritually to other church members. It's easy to find other church members who struggle with things that are not an issue for you. It's also easy to find other church members who who seem to have it all together. It's easy to draw conclusions about our spiritual or our relative worth compared to these other members and to fall into that whole pattern of comparing yourself to other people and ranking yourself again. Verse 3 says, it's all an illusion. Anyone who thinks he is something, when he is nothing, deceives himself. That's all an illusion. Anytime that we do this, we're deceiving ourselves. Instead, says Paul, let each one test his own work. The word test is, is used to examine something. It's used in the sense of examining something to determine its quality. In First Peter 1 verse 7, it, uses, it gets used to refer to testing gold. And um, the technical term for that is assaying. If you work in the mining industry, um, people test a sample of gold, right? They assay the gold to, to work out its, its, um, how much gold is in a particular sample. And you have to test it against a standard. So what standard do we test ourselves against? The standard of the law of Christ. It's the only legitimate standard. And then in verse 4, Paul goes on to say something that seems to totally contradict what he said a few verses ago. He says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So, did you catch that? First he says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And then he goes on to say, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So, so which is it? On the one hand, don't think that you're something when you're nothing. On the other hand, if you uh, test your own work, then you have reason to boast in yourself. How does that work? That seems to be contradictory but the word, for us, the word boasting only has one meaning, and it's a bad one, right? A negative one. And that kind of boasting is boasting according to the flesh, as Paul calls it. For example, in Second Corinthians 11, verse 18, it is negative, but the word itself can also have another meaning. And not really much in English anymore, although it is, um, the, there are some, some um remnants of that in the English word boasting, but um, certainly in the original language, it can also mean to glory in something, to rejoice in something, and that's how it's translated in Romans 5, verse 11. So what does it mean to boast in this sense? It means to rejoice in the fruit that the Holy Spirit has produced in your life, and now we're getting somewhere when we look at this. Now it makes sense. Then his reason to boast, his reason to rejoice in God's work will be in himself alone, so this sort of rejoicing says, what a great God we have. Look at what he's done in my life. Look, I'm, look at all the things that are happening in me. Look at what he's done in your life. It's amazing. Here's a man who used to be self-centered, but now his faith has made him a leader in his family. Here's a woman who was always self-absorbed, but now she's devoting herself to serving others. What a wonderful thing that, that God's transforming word can Lead us out of ourselves. So boasting, in a sense, will always highlight your own weakness because that's where you see the greatest differences between your natural inclinations and what God has done, right? If, you, if you're really surprised by something God has done in your own life, that can only mean that before he did that thing, that things were pretty bad. So, so boasting in that um, also means that, that you yourself have, have nothing of your own to contribute to that. Right, you, you came from here, this was bad, and you ended up here, this is good. And, and so this sort of boasting highlights our own weaknesses, and it focuses on the work of Christ, and that's what he's talking about here. His reason to boast will be in himself. And, and it also challenges us, and this text is asking you, dear brothers and sisters, it's asking us, are we growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ Compared to this time last year, how much progress have you made? How many more fruit of the Spirit have you seen growing in your life? Paul says uh, you should test yourself. Compare yourself to the law of Christ. Do you, do you see progress in your spiritual walk, in your walk of faith? And, and that question applies to everything. Let each one test his own work. Work is everything that our life is about. That some totality of how we live in the light of Scripture, the manifestation of all that we have believed in, in thought, in word, in deed, how, how has it come out? What's our, what's our life, been like? Test your own work, he says. And again, he is not suggesting that we are saved by our works in any shape or form, The works are not the basis of our justification, but our works will be assessed. And Christians forget that sometimes. We will be judged on judgment day. Our works will be. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 14 verse 10 says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The point is not to compare yourself with others in order to um, look down on them or to feel frustrated because you can't live up to what they are. You don't match up to them. You're not required to bear their load. You are not required to bear someone else's load. You are, you, don't, you are required to bear your own, though. You're required to work with what you've been given in your circumstances. And he says then, each will have to bear his own load. And load here in verse 5 is different from the burden in verse 2. These are two different words. In verse 2, it was a heavy burden that, that exhausts people. But a load is different. You've got to think of somebody who goes hiking, for example, and um, Or bushwalking, as we call it here, and carries along a pack. That's his load to carry. You know, that's his, his responsibility. That's his pack. He ought to carry that. We all have one. We all have to give account to God for how we have used the gifts and responsibilities that he has given us. Don't worry about other people in that regard, but look at your own life. How much progress are we making in terms of the fruit of the Spirit? How have we grown? How has God's Spirit worked in us? How have we lived up to the gifts and responsibilities that He gave to us? So we are not to compare ourselves to others. We are not to look down on those who are spiritually weaker than us. We are not to look up with envy and regret at those who are spiritually stronger than us. God calls them to be responsible for their life. He calls us to be responsible for ours. And while we do that, life becomes a whole lot simpler because we have a realistic view on ourselves. We can restore each other gently without looking down on them. And we learn to keep in step with the Spirit of God as he works in our lives together as church members. May God's work in our lives bring us much joy. And then when we see him face to face, we will hear those words. Well done good and faithful servant. Amen.